Hello and welcome to National League Town, Mets fandom, Mets history, Mets life, with Long Island's own Greg Prince and Jeff Eisen. Hey, Greg. Greetings from high over America, Jeff, where we're winging our way to the coast to be in a major motion picture or, you know, 10 games in California. On today's show, we remember Hobie Landreth. But first, now they beat the Padres two out of three. Now they beat the Padres two out of three. Remember when that would have come in very handy? You know what? It still comes in handy. It's a new season. Never mind what happened the last time the Mets faced the Padres. This time the Mets got the best of San Diego at City Field, and they get to keep playing, which is something they didn't get to do the last time they played the Padres. So good for them. Tuesday's game ended with Francisco Alvarez striking out. I want to talk about his usage because it's surprising me he's only played one out of every three games it's not like they missed tomas nito's great bat i know that tomas nito is a plus defender and a superior framer he's not a good hitter and the team needs a good hitter alvarez has the potential to be a good hitter now again i understand that alvarez is 21 and 21 is young to be a catcher on the major league level but I don't think you call up your number one prospect, one of the top 10 prospects in baseball, to play him 33% of the time. First off, I have a number of portraits here that could use a superior framer. <laughs> so I am going to get on the, the horn with Tomas Nito when we're done. You know, I think it's a tricky situation having Francisco Alvarez up and either playing him or not playing him or playing him sometimes. It's a different framing than you have if you had brought up Beatty let's say, or you brought up Vientos, where having those guys just sit on the bench playing now and then would be at cross purposes with their development. Catchers, for the most part, don't play literally every day or most every day. Certainly when this season started, Narvaez and Nito were in something of a platoon. It's difficult to just say, hey, Nito, who we just re-signed, go take a seat. The future is here. Because I don't think the future is here just yet it was in nobody's planning to have francisco alvarez with us in the middle of april of 2023 and i'm not that excited to see him not i don't mean oh my god he's not a great prospect still a great prospect i just don't think this was his time question becomes could have you jiggered the uh, 40-man roster a little bit and gotten a professional quadruple a catcher in here like michael perez uh, i think that might have been preferable on the other hand hey if he does start playing a little more maybe alvarez gets more comfortable that last at bat in that tuesday night game the one loss to the padres notice folks were on the one loss not the two wins because we're podcasters uh, that was a brutal at bat francisco alvarez was not ready to face josh Hader in that moment that's going to happen it might happen if he played two out of every three games right now because of an injury. He's here. I don't know that he is the best option at this time, and it is certainly not the best circumstance to have him here. But as we speak, winging their way west, maybe he'll get more chances. Maybe he'll open eyes. I can't blame Showalter if he wants to lean a little more on his veteran catcher depending on who is comfortable throwing to who. For the time being, Alvarez is here, and I, I think 
you, you'll probably see a little more of him as we go along. It's a little odd. I, I agree. Your number one prospect is here to watch in April. I think that'll change as time goes by. One reason why it's odd, Greg, is that the Mets said that they won't do that. That's why they sent him down. They wanted to play every day. Same with Beatty, same with Vientos. They're doing the opposite of what they said they were going to do. I would like rather also agree with you, seeing Michael Perez, he's not on the 40-man. They apparently had no alternatives, but I hope that Alvarez gets some more starts. I, th- I think one thing that we sort of have to keep in mind here, we see these fantastic highlights from the minor leagues. We see the Syracuse Mets going crazy against their international league rivals. And we said, why can't we get Alvarez up here? Why can't we get Beatty or Vientos or Mauricio even up here? They're facing minor league pitching. I think we're, we're only seeing the best unless we are glued to our MLB.TV special features. We're probably getting a bit of a skewed vision of what could be right away, which is not to say, hey, maybe Beatty would come up here and, and light the league on fire. And maybe Alvarez still will. Again, it's, this is one of those things where you say, hey, I'm not going to do that. That thing that's bad for me, uh, the thing I, I don't mean to plan, I am not going to do that. Oh, guess what? I had to do it. I didn't have anything, any choice. Uh, even baseball teams, I suppose, sometimes get into situations they don't mean to. It seems a little odd that you would. I think, again, I was going to m- make my periodical for carrying three catchers. But would have Alvarez been one of the three catchers anyway, and he wouldn't have been playing that much? I'm not sure. But, you know, sometimes you you just wind up doing what you don't intend to do. Maybe it will all work out in the short term. In the long term, I'm not going to worry about the long term right now. It's April, and he's 21. On Tuesday, the Mets had that terrible game, a slog, no matter how long the game was. And meanwhile, on Twitter, you're seeing... Oh, look, Beatty hit a home run. Oh, look, Beatty's exit velocity is a 1,000 or whatever it was. Fiento hit a home run. Mauricio hit another home run. Oh, look, here's Kana hitting into a double play. Uh, here's nothing happening for the Mets. So it can skew your perspective. And again, they are playing minor leaguers there, but it's something to keep an eye on. Yeah, and we, we wouldn't be fans if we weren't looking forward to you know, next man up or next star up, if, if we should be so lucky. We uh, the the only thing that's going to stop us is if everybody at the major league level is hitting and fielding and doing everything else all at once, which probably won't happen. But conversely, those who we see sort of struggling in the early going are either going to stop struggling and start hitting, or we will be calling up the guys who are succeeding at the minor league level. And giving them their shot. I mean, ultimately, those guys are coming up here. Right now, a little bit of an, an inventory overload, a little bit of a backlog. And a little bit of faith in the, in the guys who got you where you were going last year. And gotten off to, as we speak, a 7-6 and six start. Which is not the start we necessarily wanted. But having watched the Milwaukee series, we know it could have been a lot worse. And now we'll hope to make the most of California. This past week also saw the introduction of the advertising patch on the Mets uniform. New York Presbyterian, welcome to the family. At least Steve noticed that the colors don't match. He called them Phillies colors. It's certainly disconcerting to see an advertising patch. I think we are now one step closer to having baseball uniforms look like Premier League uniforms. What was one of our favorite baseball movies? Bad News Bears. What was on the back of every Bad News Bears uniform? Chico's Bail Bonds. Uh, We have arrived. 
nothing premier about it. It's a sad look. Even a team owned by somebody who probably doesn't have to worry about these things. If there's money to be had, there's money not going to be left on the table. And here we are. And I, I also wonder what the, I don't know if you would call it peer pressure or just, hey, we're all doing this. Don't make us look bad by not having one, Steve. But yeah, the Mets got in there with a bunch of other teams, including the Padres. We just saw they had the Motorola patch last year, and we'll see a lot more as we go through the season. We saw with the Marlins have a patch that is pretty much bigger than the uniform itself. At, at this point, you just hope for something tasteful. It's too late to say, oh, my God, commercialization has come to baseball. I mean, commercialization. Look, look at film clips uh, from the Polo Grounds in 1962 and 1963. Ads were all over the fence. That went out of style for a while. Shea Stadium, you never saw that for about the first 30 plus years. Suddenly in the late 90s, ads were all over the fence again. Ads are everywhere. So now they are on the uniform, a la soccer, a la the NBA, a la the NHL. It's here. I would like a smaller patch. Again, I, I don't think it has to compete with the video board in center field for size. <laughs> That's what it looks like. It looks a little stiff. I do worry about the pressure on the starting pitchers and the relief pitchers on their arms as they throw the ball because this is extra weight. And yeah, how, how does it get to the point where it's on the sleeve of the uniform and nobody checked with Steve Cohen, nobody said, hey, listen, what do you think that it had to get to opening day for him to say, uh, what's that doing there? Which I, I guess shows that he's not uh, a meddling owner all the time, hands off and, and leaving it to the people who whose job it is. I, I wonder if the people whose job it was to put on a patch that Steve Cohen wound up not liking, if it's still that person's job. But maybe they can, uh, they can shrink it a little. Uh, yes, blue and orange it up. And again, nothing against uh, New York Presbyterian. If, if anything, there is a baseball connection to New York Presbyterian. Part of New York Presbyterian was uh, Columbia Presbyterian. And Columbia Presbyterian was the, is the site of where Hilltop Park sat in the early part of the 20th century. Hilltop Park, home of the New York Highlanders, before the New York Highlanders started calling themselves something else. Uh, they moved into the polo grounds where the Mets would play many years later. That same franchise would, would borrow Shea Stadium for two years. Uh, they would play a series at City Field as a, a home games when Tampa Bay was chased out of St. Petersburg by bad weather. The Yankees have encroached on Met territory or National League territory because the Mets weren't around 1913. You know, Giants shared their, their place with them. The Mets shared their place with them twice. Well, spiritually, here we are taking a little step into historical territory that was not necessarily National League town. But then again, uh, tradition is one thing. An advertising partnership is a whole other thing. And if uh, New York Presbyterian wishes to be involved with the New York Mets, that is to their credit. And you could, again, you could do worse than, than a... Uh, a medical enterprise devoted to healing and saving lives for a marketing partner, then, you know, again, they're not Chico's bail bombs, at least. So let's be happy with that. Sort of like when they sold the naming rights to the ballpark that became City Field. You looked around baseball and you said, oh, my God, those are some terrible names. I hope the Mets don't wind up with one. And City Field, eh, you could take it or leave it as a name. But it could have been a lot worse, as, as we've seen as we, uh, we, we go through the circuit. Fix the patch a little. Fix the colors, fix the size. And if they fall off, that's okay too. 
I read an article that says a New York council person is petitioning the Mets to change the name because of cities, Citibank's lending practices. I don't think anything will come of that, but it was in the news this week. It's always good to make a stand. And we've seen the clock, the pitch clock for two weeks. I want to know your thoughts on that. For me, when the Mets are ahead, the game can't be over fast enough. And yet the game seems that it moves slowly because the Mets are ahead and I want the game to be over. Similarly, when the Mets are losing and losing badly, the game is endless. But at the same time, it also seems like it's over too quickly because the Mets didn't have enough chances. None of that changes the 15 seconds, the 20 seconds, the violations. How do you feel about the clock so far? It's taken some getting used to. I think I'm slowly getting used to it. Glad we're talking about it two weeks in because if we talked about it one week in, I would just overreact and say, ah, they're ruining my game and uh, get get off uh, Pete Flynn's lawn. I, again, I am reminded now watching these games why they did it. When it was a theory, when they were talking, we're going to test in the minor leagues, I said, well, good, because games are too slow. Uh, the games got too fast very quickly. No, there's no satisfying a, a fan sometimes. But I, th- I think, you know, by the second week, I stopped being uber conscious of it, became one with the pace a little more. It helped, I think, that the last uh, couple of games didn't go that fast. It felt like they were just going by too fast. I waited all winter for this, for, for games whose entire purpose seemed to be getting them over with, and then people telling us how happy we should be that they're over with. I don't mind a three-hour game upper limit. 245 is fine. 2.30, maybe that's ideal. I don't know. It, it was weird when a game would start at, what is it? I think like the games in Miami started at 6.40 and there was one that was over before 9. And it was like, well, where's my baseball game? What am I supposed to do with the rest of my life tonight? The, the players are going to settle in. The pitchers are going to settle in. Still, I, again, I, I don't think this is what baseball is set up to have. And that'll take some time. There was a clip going around uh, on April 5th, the anniversary of Tom Seaver's return to the Mets in 1983 of his first batter, Pete Rose, that first encounter. And he works very fast and Rose gets into the box and all. And, you know, this is the way baseball used to be. But there is a an interval in which Seaver, because he's Seaver, because he's a pitcher, just kind of walks off the mound for a moment with his back to home plate, you know, rubbing up the ball, whatever he's doing, composing himself as pitchers have done for 150 years, and then he's back on the mound and he's working quickly. You can't just do that now, can you? Unless you you call a timeout or something. And maybe I've got that wrong, but I, I haven't seen that. Everything is about moving along, moving along, moving along. And we've seen balls called and strikes called because somebody didn't move it along. We saw that one instance with Mark Canna trying to discern the velocity of uh, the, the last pitch he saw from the scoreboard because that's something he does. And that cost him two seconds. And because he was not set to face the pitcher with eight seconds remaining or whatever the hell it was, he was had a ball called, or excuse me, he had a strike called on him. Again, maybe this is one of the things that's going to work itself out it feels a little like what we've talked about with instant replay, you know, the, the foot ever so slightly above the bag. And so suddenly he's considered tagged out, the runner that is. Uh, gee, that's not what replay was for. And I, I don't think uh, the pitch clock was for, for these picky violations. It was just to keep things moving. And again, this this might be something to revisit. You know, all of us as fans 
And uh, as we become a little less conscious of it, I think the greatest thing would be become completely not conscious of it and that it's just going on. And hey, we got our two and a half hours of baseball and hopefully the Mets won and we're happy and we stopped thinking about it. But it, it's taken a little time. No, no pun intended. <laughs> I don't think that they're shoving it down our throats in terms of TV viewing because the clock doesn't stay on the whole time. What I don't need is SNY's overproduction of a giant close-up of the batter, a giant close-up of the pitcher, and the clock in the middle ticking down like it's an episode of 24. I don't need that. Show the clock subtly in the top left when it's under eight seconds. Yeah, again, it's a novelty right now. I would imagine that we, we won't have that need to know that, oh my God, it's 12 seconds until a pitch. Hey, I, I, I like the overproduction to a uh, certain point. If the clock wasn't there, it wouldn't be visually commented upon, I suppose. But again, this is such an injection of adrenaline that you weren't asking for necessarily into the game that it's hard not to be cognizant of it, whether you know, you're directing the game, whether you're announcing the game, whether you're just thinking about the game, watching the game, and of course, playing the game. You know, there's there was I don't know if I would call it backlash, but you know, there was discussion. Well, do you take the pitch clock away in postseason because then you won't have moments like you had in the World Baseball Classic with Otani facing Trout because none of those were you know, within the 22nd realm, but those were such dramatic pitches. I think it would be awfully hard to ask players who have played for 162 games in a certain way to say, okay, now forget all of that. Right. I think, you know, this, this is ride or die, as they say. So we're going to ride for a while with the pitch clock, at least in 2023, and, unless somebody changes their mind at the all-star break. And it seems that the, the powers that be are, are pretty happy that this exists. And you know what? Uh, I don't know if it was their idea, but to get people talking extra about baseball and, and thinking about it and suddenly making the early season beyond opening day sort of a happening, they, they might have succeeded with that. One thing that I think would help is at least for one game. How about one game with a Dean Blandino or a Mike Pereira there to explain the violations? I know you don't want to be distracted from the machinations of the game itself, but how about one game? where they explain the violations. That's a great idea. But who's the guy on CBS? Gene? Gene Serator. Gene Serator. Yeah, he was the guy who was like coming up every every third play uh, during March Madness. Already forgotten his name. Yeah, ba- baseball has always been a little too cloaked in secrecy where explaining itself is concerned. It took about 10 years almost. I guess what? 14 was the, the first year of instant replay and it wasn't. Was it last year they finally miked the umps to let you know what happened, you know, why a call was overturned or if it was overturned? That that took nine seasons to happen. So yeah, I think the the more you can demystify this for the fan, and especially if I, I don't know, I haven't been to a game yet this year. But you know, sometimes the worst place to be is in the stands <laughs> at the game because they don't tell you anything if they can help it. At least if you're watching on TV, you've got people explaining what's going on. Once they figure it out. So you would hope that the game becomes simple enough where you wouldn't really need, you know, was it a catch or not a catch, that sort of thing. But for the time being, might not hurt, actually. The first time I watch Apple TV this year for for baseball will be when the Mets play. But apparently this season, they are showing the replay rule. And that's a breaks from that 
secrecy that you just talked about. I hope that they'll do more of that. It's a good idea. Uh, we talked about the patch, and no one can say that that's a positive advancement for baseball. But a few weeks ago, Greg and I discussed positive advancements in the game, and we received a letter which told us that we omitted three, and we want to talk about them. It was a great letter from Michael in California, a positive advancements in baseball. And one of them, he said, was better player health, including nutrition, training, rest, medicine, psychology, abolition of PEDs, and advice. You don't see players eating a bunch of hot dogs between innings, do you? I think that's, I a, know that- that's a great call. Yeah, I don't know that we ever actually saw that, but you know, you, you always had those stories of uh, we were in the uh, the bullpen in Wrigley Field, and we we'd you know get the uh, the ball boy, we'd uh, you know slip him a five, and he'd run across the street to the McDonald's and bring us back whatever. Uh, you know, you may have noticed on opening day when the Mets were introducing everybody who works in the clubhouse and behind the scenes, which is nice. You get to meet everybody, and they get to shine once a week. Quite the nutrition staff and kitchen staff and, yes, a sous chef. All these things you, you didn't know they had in baseball. But, yeah, of course they do because, you know, the, this is where the, the players we root for spend, you know, all day and night or, or you know, most of it. So, you know, that is uh, an important part of their conditioning. Absolutely nice, uh, as Michael says, not, not to be thinking about PEDs in the modern era and just in, in general the conditioning. Hey. Hey, there's a hospital that is sponsoring the Mets uniforms these days. That that's how important health and conditioning has become. But that's a, a good call on Michael in California's part. What else has he got? Cutting down on cheating from pitchers such as foreign substances, cutting the ball, and hitters such as stealing signs, bat construction. I will say that that's true as far as we know. You don't know if people are cheating. We may never know. But we don't think that they are. That's a positive sign in baseball. Other teams are cheating. The Mets are cleverly looking for an edge. That's how that works. Listen, the the more you can do to maintain faith in the game, uh, the more you don't have the 2017 Astros being revealed to have been the 2017 Astros. That's a good thing. Again, if you, if you want to use your wits and notice uh, somebody's putting down two fingers and what that means, of course, with pitchcom. There's less of that. Uh, you know, the, the thing where they started checking the pitcher's glove as he was leaving the mound a couple of years ago. Again, that was one of those things like the pitch clock where every broadcast stopped and showed the pitcher for a while because, again, it was novel. And it was this this foreign substance in the bloodstream of baseball. And now, like, nobody mentions it. And when they're going to commercial, like, you might catch just a glimpse of Whoever's coming off the mound, stopping to, it, it seems like he's stopping to have a chat with the umpire, but no, he's getting checked. Uh, but we don't even think about it anymore. And again, if, if, the, if that is all in the quest for fair play, then yes, I, I agree with Michael. Good idea. The third part of Michael's letter was the elimination of artificial turf. Players' joint health is much improved on the softer grass and fewer careers would be prematurely ended. I think if you took a vote... 99 percent. there's always going to be a naysayer would say hooray that there is no more artificial turf hooray uh, for the elimination of artificial turf i think even in the places where they don't have natural grass 
the artificial surfaces are now so grass-like that it's not really the same as what we think of in the days of the Vets and Bush Stadium, the, the one that was haunted by Vince Coleman and Ozzie Smith and, and all the rabbits and, and that sort of thing. And yeah, you think back to a player like Andre Dawson, who might have liked to have stayed in Montreal if, if the economics were right, but he couldn't wait to get out of there because he was playing on cement. He was playing on the artificial turf at Olympic Stadium. And there were lots of stories like that through the years. And it, it may have done great things for certain speedsters' careers and for lashing the ball around, and, and that was fun to a certain degree, but it was unnatural. This is just one of those things that is because it is. Baseball is better on natural grass, and it's better for the players. It's better for the fans. It's one of those things that artificial turf, that is, eliminated so matter-of-factly that after a while, you stop noticing that it was one of the, the major changes in the last 50 years. Again, if, if when that, that time frame that we were talking about when we did that show, and you know, for, for me, it was lo- looking at baseball from the time I started watching, it was the, the introduction of, the, of so many stadiums that were using artificial turf that it got to the point where you know, Shea seemed odd because it didn't have artificial turf. And there was some talk uh, as late as the mid-80s that they were going to convert Shea to artificial turf because they wanted to try to lure the Jets back. And how do you do that? You have a multi-purpose stadium. You don't have to worry about the grass getting chewed up in addition to whatever else was bothering Leon Hess. I was so glad that that talk went away, and I'm even gladder that we don't see that kind of carpet anymore. And once again, uh, Michael, a very observant fan, and I appreciate him uh, sharing those insights with us. We thank Michael in California for his letter. And if you want to get in touch with the show, write to nationalleaguetown at gmail.com. One word, nationalleaguetown at gmail.com. Before we go, this past week, Hobie Landreth passed away. He wasn't just an original Met. He was the original Met. And Greg's going to talk about it. Yes, thanks, Jeff. Hobie Landreth died at the age of 93. So, you know, you, you can't say he was cheated. Uh, my life in that regard. But it certainly was something to get a Mets fan's attention because if you started being a Mets fan when there were first Mets, I suppose the first name you would have learned was Hobie Landreth because you know that somewhere in the metropolitan area, people dying for New York to become a National League town once more, Somebody was hanging on every word of the 1961 expansion draft. Uh, There was no ESPN. There was no WFAN. There wasn't even sports phone. But you know somebody had something set up to follow the darn thing. And they started writing down the names. And the very first name you would have written down, the first major leaguer to join the New York Mets, Hobie Landreth, catcher for the San Francisco Giants, and a bunch of teams going back to 1950. So you know, there, what is it Cole Porter said? They can't take that away from me. They can never take that away from Hobie Landreth. Uh, you know, more expansion draft choices would follow, most of them composing the team that became the 1962 Mets, which may not be the best advertisement for the 1961 expansion draft, but that's not the fault of the players necessarily. The expansion draft was not exactly set up 
to make sure the Mets or the Colt 45s got all the talent in the world. But Hobie Landreth, you know, we've been talking about catching in this episode. And sometimes you just want a guy who can catch the ball. And Hobie Landreth was one of those players. He wouldn't have stuck around for 14 seasons, 1950 to 1963, if he wasn't a good, reliable defensive catcher. And this is probably the longest any Mets fan has ever talked about Hobie Landreth without invoking what Casey Stengel said about why they wanted to draft Hobie Landreth first. You've all thought it if you've spent more than two minutes being a Mets fan. But for those who've never heard it before, or for those who like to hear an old favorite when they go to a concert, why did they draft Hobie Landreth first? Per Casey Stengel, you got to start with a catcher. Because if you don't, you'll have all passed balls, and you're going to be chasing the ball back to the screen all day. Which, like all Stengelese, makes total sense. And was probably said with something approximating a wink, as if to say, no, I'm not exactly sure why we picked Obi Landreth necessarily over everybody else. But you know what? Obi Landreth came to New York, wore number five. He was the first to wear number five in a, in a Mets game. We may have already seen the last to wear number five. I guess we'll know that eventually. But uh, you know, for, for all the men who wore number five, whether it was Ed Charles, Suyoshi Shinjo, uh, John Olerud, and ultimately David Wright, Hobie Landreth got number five started. Hobie Landreth was the starting catcher on opening night in St. Louis. Hobie Landreth started a bunch of games for the Mets as Casey Stengel figure out, figured out what he had. He had seven different catchers as 1962 progressed, and Hobie Landreth, not only the first of them, but uh, the last to have survived. And Hobie Landreth had one moment with the bat that stands out. He hit what we now refer to as a walk-off home run in the first game of a doubleheader at the Polo Grounds on May 12, 1962. It was against the Milwaukee Braves, and it was not only a walk-off home run, it was a walk-off home run off Warren Spahn future Met, but more to the point, a future Hall of Famer, somebody who was already on his way to the Hall of Fame for sure. And I would love to tell you that Hobie Landreth just got a a good feel for what Spahn was going to throw, and he just walloped that ball into the Harlem River. Well, folks, you've seen pictures of the polo grounds, and you know how the dimensions kind of curve around. Uh, You know, Hobie Landreth hit a ball about 260 feet by all indications, and it fell into the stands. But you know what? It was a home run, and the Mets won. The Mets didn't win a whole lot of games. You know what they did, though, in the second game of that doubleheader? They won the second game the exact same way with a home run. This one by Gil Hodges, who hit more than a few. Uh, Also, quite honestly, not very far. The Mets, this is home field advantage. The Mets needed every break they could get. And Hobie Landreth and Gil Hodges led the Mets to two wins in a row. And that was, it is not a, uh, I, I don't think it's it's an exaggeration to say that was pretty much the high point of the 62 Mets. Uh, they would uh, win a few more games in the week ahead. They were seven games under 500. They went to the West Coast and to Houston. And uh, they went on a, a losing streak that, for all intents and purposes, never stopped. I think it was 17. But let, let's not... Uh, Let's not get bogged down in the uh, foibles 
1962 Mets. Let us celebrate the original 1962 Mets. Hobie was here, like I said, at the beginning, and he was here until June. Remember, there's a lot of churn on those 62 Mets. The Mets had made a move in early May uh, to acquire a player you might have heard of, a fellow named Mark Thronberry, which seemed to be a straight cash deal. But George Weiss, the president of the team, really the GM, but he couldn't have that title for contractual reasons, uh, apparently didn't tell anybody that there was a player going to Baltimore for Thronberry. It turned out to be Landreth. Landreth w- was happy to be done with George Weiss because he thought George Weiss kind of screwed him over when it came to his contract because, hey, that's what uh, GMs did to players in those days. But Landreth uh, went on with you know one more year of his career, hung around baseball in certain capacities, went on to do many other things with his life, would still talk fondly about his days with the Mets, talked fondly about Casey Stengel, about how what he learned from Casey Stengel when he was finishing up in the American League. He put it to good use to uh, to finish a game, calling signals. And, you know, again, when you are the original Met, uh, I, I don't think you want to let that distinction go by. And the funny thing is the Mets themselves – long after 1962, kind of forgot about Hobie Landreth. I mean, they didn't leave his name out of the all-time roster or anything like that. But as we know, prior to 2022, the Mets could be kind of hot and cold about honoring their past and inviting their former players back. And when Jay Harwitz, person we've talked about on the show numerous times, uh, when he took over as alumni director, one of his first calls was to the first Met. Maybe he had a very long list and he started at the top. And he said in so many words, hi, Hobie, this is Jay Harwitz from the New York Mets. I'm the alumni director. I'm, I'm calling to say hi. And Hobie Landreth said, I haven't heard from anybody on the Mets since 1962, which is an awful long way to wait when you were the original Mets. And fortunately, according to Jay, I know he stayed in touch with Hobie and there were no hard feelings. And Hobie was happy to be remembered as a Met. I'm going to throw in one more personal memory now that I'm thinking about it. And again, I never saw Hobie Landreth play. I ain't that old, but uh, I remember reading an article about Hobie Landreth in 2006. It was from the New Jersey, NJ.com, Newark Star-Ledger, that that vehicle. And they had a reporter out in California, decided to go visit Hobie Landreth because the Mets were in the uh, 2006 playoffs. And you were looking for Mets angles after all those years of the Mets not being in the playoffs, they decide, hey, wouldn't it be fun to to check in with Hobie Landreth, the original Mets, see what he's up to? And it struck me, Hobie Landreth actually exists. <laughs> and it's funny because I, I understood that conceptually, but something about so many of those players always kind of talked about it in this nutshell form. In his case, yeah, you're going to have a lot of pass balls. First pick, move on. Or, you know, one anecdote per guy. Uh, you know, again, not, not every 62 Mets. Some of these guys you know, stayed in baseball a long time. A guy like Roger Craig managed and he was a pitching coach. So, you know, I knew he was a real person. And it, it struck me that, you know, it, it's it's strange that I would think Popeyland was somehow not only, you know, I knew, happy to hear he was alive, but somehow he wasn't a myth. He was a real person. He was aware of the Mets sitting out in California. He was waiting for a phone call from the Mets. And I think it's, it's since then that really kind of upped my appreciation for those who wore the uniform, those who who played for this team, even if I never saw them. 
Uh, you know, they all had stories to tell. They, they all did things in a Mets uniform. And I, I guess that's, you know, when something like this happens, I always feel a, a bit of an obligation to say, hey, you know, b- before you stop thinking about it, before you say, oh, okay, uh, he's no longer with us. I'm very sorry to hear that, you know, you know who's, who's pitching tonight. Um, I, I think it, it's nice for us as fans to stop and say, oh, okay, that's who that guy was. That's, that's why I should care a little bit. Okay, who's pitching tomorrow? You know, I understand. Life goes on that way. But that uh, is, is my, uh, my thoughts on Hopi Landreth. Uh, you know, I hate the excuse that, that, that this gives us to, to talk about you know, a player who played a long time ago. But, you know, I won't say I'm happy. But uh, I'm, I'm grateful for the chance to be able to at least, you know, disseminate a, a little bit about the first Met, like you said. Can you imagine if there had never been a first Met? None of us would be here doing this right now. Everybody that wore a Mets uniform is worth remembering. That's one of the guiding principles of National League Town. Rest in peace, Hobie Landreth. Our condolences to his family. Thank you, Greg. And that'll do it for this episode of National League Town. We thank you for listening. The Mets are on the West Coast, so that means by the time we speak to you next week, Greg and I and many of you will have lost a lot of sleep. We'll be back to talk about it next week. Until then, I'm Jeff Heisen. I'm Greg Prince. And as always, let's go Mets. Copyright 2023 music provided by the Royal Arctic Institute. Check them out on Spotify.